You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Would you remain standing as we read our scripture for this morning? Our passage is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. That's on page 932 in the Bibles that are in the chairbacks in front of you. I invite you to follow along as I read. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we confess that our culture often darkens our understanding of your holy word. So I would pray as Pastor Jeremy preaches this text, you would reward the hard effort that he has put into understanding it. Jesus, I pray that your word would be known, not anything over it and not anything under it, but it would be clear to us. And Lord, I pray that as we listen to this word, we realize what you're doing is creating this beautiful bride of Christ, made up of men and women equally created in your image for your glory to bring the gospel to a world that desperately needs to see it. May we model that in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Marty. Exodus 32 is a fascinating chapter that gives us a window into how God wants to be worshipped. Now, just in case you forgot to brush up on Exodus 32 over breakfast this morning and you're thinking, what in the world is Exodus 32 all about? That's the place in the Old Testament where we find Moses leading the Israelites to the base of Mount Sinai. Moses has been on the top of Mount Sinai now following the Exodus, following the Red Sea, and he's been up there for a long time. And while he's up there, the Israelites say, to Aaron, his brother, we really love the way the Egyptians used to worship. That involved the golden calf. Would you let us worship that way? And that's Exodus 32. Well, at least that's Exodus 32, the way I used to read it in my little cartoon Bible as a kid. And, and the question I always had is, how can it be that after everything that God had done, in 
helping free his people out of Egypt from all of those plagues and the angel of death killing the firstborn if you didn't have the blood on the doorpost to plundering the Egyptians with their jewelry and leaving and then walking through the Red Sea. God, I mean, can you imagine if even just a swimming pool would part when you walk through it? But not just a pool, the Red Sea. And all of the Israelites safe on the other side. And then the superpower of the day. Egypt and its army getting crushed as the Red Sea collapsed upon them. And God's people are victorious. And so how in the world could you get through all of that? They find themselves at the base of a mountain and Aaron is leading them to worship a stupid heifer. How does that work? Well, my cartoon Bible said that that's what happened. Uh, But then something changed when I actually read chapter 32, verse 5. I put it on the screen for you. Look with me. Exodus 32, 5. When Aaron saw this, all the people bringing all the jewelry, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So it turns out in the original Hebrew, the word Lord there means Yahweh. Would you say that? One, two, three. Yahweh. Yahweh is not a generic name for Lord. Yahweh is the personal name the covenant name of the one true God. And what that clicked in for me then is, as far as Aaron is concerned, as far as Aaron is concerned, when he has this feast for the Lord, he actually is leading God's people to worship the true God, Yahweh. Right, God, to worship, wrong way to worship. They're worshiping the right God, but they're worshiping the wrong way. Here then is the principle that you find from Exodus all the way through the scriptures. God is not only concerned with being worshiped, he cares how he's worshiped. God doesn't just care that he's worshiped, he cares how he's worshipped. God wants his people to worship his way. All right, pastor, but what in the world does all of this have to do with that radioactive passage that we just heard Pastor Marty read? Well, it turns out God's people there in Ephesus are not so different than God's people there at Sinai. And they're not so different than those of us here who who count ourselves among God's people. All of us have in common this temptation to want to worship our way, not God's way. In Egypt, the temptation, or for the Israelites out of Egypt, the temptation was to want to worship God the way other cultures worshiped God, which included a golden calf. That was their temptation. In Ephesians, we're going to see that in the city of Ephesus, the temptation for some was to worship like they did at the cult of Artemis and the way the cult prostitutes worshipped. In today's day and age, there are different types of cultural Kool-Aid that we are tempted to want to worship God in those ways. But what God's word says is, God not only cares that you worship, he cares how you worship. And this morning then we're going to see we need to worship God 
the way he wants to be worshipped. This morning then, Paul's going to get to that heart. And he's going to do it in three ways. One, particularly for men, that women can listen in on. Two, particularly for women, that men can listen in on. But there are three heart issues Paul's going to address, and that's where we're going in this sermon. Three heart issues. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. Open to 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 15. And, and by the way, if you're new with us and you're thinking to yourself, good grief, why in the world are you preaching that this week, pastor? Well, the way we do it around here is we pick a book of the Bible and we just preach all the way through it. And this passage happens to be one of the most radioactive in the whole letter. And what kind of pastor would I be if I just skipped the hard parts, right? We preach the easy stuff, we preach the hard stuff. God willing, we preach all the stuff. But let's begin with the Instruction here in 1 Timothy 2, aimed at men. If you're taking notes, you might write this down. Men in the church pray without anger or quarreling. Men in the church pray without anger or quarreling. Look with me there at verse 8 to see Paul explaining how men should and shouldn't pray. And keep context in mind, because here at this section, Paul has been identifying blueprints for a strong church, pillars for a strong church. He uses the word buttresses for a strong church. Buttress is, an, uh, is a word that is a supporting a wall and makes it really strong. Architects know what buttresses is. We've seen so far him saying, you've got to have a pillar of strong doctrine. Last week, Matt did a great job of explaining, here's the pillar prayer. Today we're on pillar number three, men and women in the church. And right off the bat, Paul's offering a positive command to men followed by a negative, saying something like, hey, Timothy, do this, not that. And in fact, in all three of these heart issues, that's going to happen. Hey, do this, not that. For men, do this, lift holy hands in prayer. In every place, Men should lift holy hands in prayer, not that, anger and quarreling. Lift holy hands in prayer, not anger and quarreling. Notice this word, every place. It certainly means every place. But it has, it has more of a meaning in Paul's intended audience. It has an emphasis on gathered worship as well. I know we don't always get that in the, in the English translation, but what I found out is Paul's actually hinting at, hey, men, I want you to do this wherever you're at, but especially be aware when the church is gathered. When the church is gathered. So in every place, men should pray. How? Holy hands lifted high, not with anger or quarreling. You could say, hey, men, when we pray, Pray open hands, not closed-fisted in anger. This is not a posture for prayer. This is the posture for prayer. Here then, gender-specific instructions. Paul getting right to the heart of men. Worship is a big deal. For anybody who thinks... Look, it's not a big deal if guys want to show up to worship service and they want to pray and they're angry and quarreling. You're wrong. It's a really big deal. Angry 
and argumentative men are a terrible distraction and they disrupt worship. How we worship matters, men. Reminds us of Jesus in Matthew 5, 23, who tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're offering a gift at the altar and you realize that you have something against your brother or your brother has something against you, stop. Stop what you're doing. Stop with that worship and go make that right first. Like Jesus is saying, it's not just about outward appearances when you worship. Men, you can come to this thing on Sunday morning. You can have the right posture, but if in your heart you're not doing the right thing, why then you're not worshiping God the way he wants to be worshiped. God doesn't just want us to pray, men. He wants us to pray the right way. And men, look, this is one of the few places in all the Bible where we are being instructed specifically. And if we're honest, men, I think many of us have a temptation to want to get angry and fight. I'm not saying that's for all men. But I do think, if we're honest, many of us face the temptation to anger and quarreling. But instead of being anger angry and quarreling, we ought to take our frustrations to God in prayer. Here's the question then to consider, men. Trying to get to our heart, men. When faced with difficulty, men, are you prone to anger or prayer? When you get triggered, men, and you are really upset, are you on your knees in prayer or are you going to fight? I confess far too many times I've taken the low road. I've taken the road of anger and quarreling instead of getting on my knees in prayer. And I'm sad to say that my family has seen it. Sad to say my kids have seen it. My wife has seen it. The way it works for me, man, I got this little bulldozer in my mind, and I just open that door, and I just get in my little bulldozer, and I close that door, and I fire it up, rum, 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 and I just start bulldozing people with my words. Oh, you don't like what I'm leading? You don't like how I'm doing it? That's okay. Rum, 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 rum. I'll just run right over you, and I'll just keep on moving on along. Pastor Marty, with a twinkle in his eye, he called me uh, Wreck-It Ralph. You know Wreck-It Ralph from that show? I'm bad, and that's good. And I wreck stuff. Boom, 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 boom. But it's not really funny to people that I wreck. I've had to say sorry more times than I can count. Paul's clear, men. We have to repent of our sinful anger. And whether we're angry at someone or something they did, whether somebody did us dirty, or whether we're just angry because we actually haven't gotten to the heart of whatever's going on in our life. Ladies, in case you didn't know, when guys get together, it is just so common for men to say to one another, I've got some anger issues. And there's a bunch of reasons why guys have anger issues. Something didn't go right with your dad, and you're still mad. 
or you're trying to earn enough money and the budget isn't balancing and you're mad. Or somebody took the credit at work for what you did and you're mad. Or you're not comfortable enough, so you're mad. Or you're trying to have some control and you can't get control, so you're mad. And there's a million other reasons why guys are mad. At the end of the day, whatever your reason is, men, for being just so mad... You need to repent of your anger and quarreling and get right with whoever you need to get right with. And you need to go to God in prayer, open hands. Pray, not with closed fists, but with open hands. James 1.20, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If you're an angry man, here's, a, here's part of the antidote. Get on your knees and pour that out to the Lord. And don't give me this, well, I I don't know if that's okay to actually tell him how angry I am. He knows it already. I assure you he's not going to respond to you and go, what? You're a man with anger issues? No. I had never got that one before. Men, this doesn't mean we don't fight injustice. God gives holy energy to men to fight things that are wrong. Micah 6, 8, we are to do justice. We are to love kindness and walk humbly with our God. But notice that middle one, love kindness. That's the way we are supposed to handle our anger. Kindly, not like the rest of the world. Look, This doesn't mean that all men have to struggle equally with anger, but for those who do, here are clear instructions from Paul. Men, let's follow God's word and let's worship God's way. God doesn't just care that you show up to pray. He cares how you show up to pray. That's the first heart issue. It's down. Let's move to the second. This one aimed at women. If you're taking notes, you might write this down. Women in the church... Your beauty comes from good deeds, not good looks. True beauty comes from good deeds, not good looks. Look there at verse 9. Paul explains how women should adorn themselves. Remember, do this, not that. And keep in mind, keep in mind, Paul is not down on any woman who wants to be beautiful. Seems to me, in my experience with my own Kids, my wife, other ladies. Females have an innate desire to look and feel beautiful. The Bible sees that innate desire as good. And often, one of my kids comes up and says to me, Daddy, I want to be beautiful. Good. That's the way God made you. Be beautiful. Paul doesn't have a problem with women who want to be beautiful. He's talking about how that beauty is discovered. See, the issue in the Ephesian church wasn't that women wanted to be beautiful. The challenge was how they were trying to be beautiful. There at Ephesus, female beauty had devolved into some sort of fashion show anytime the women were together. And while Paul doesn't say this is only happening when the church is gathered, in our case, like on a Sunday morning, the service certainly was in view as these fashionistas, verse 9, were wearing immodest or expensive attire, moving 
attention off of worship to God and putting the attention on their physical beauty. Now again, we don't have all the details here, but it seems like the ladies were far more about their Prada and their Gucci than they were trying to be God's people worshiping God's way. Paul then explaining, hey women, do this, not that. Saying, hey women, wear respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Don't disrupt the church with your hair and jewelry and your pricey attire. Paul wanting the ladies to realize, with the men listening, your beauty doesn't come merely from physical looks. Verse 10, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Women, this, this is what I'd love for you to get. Men, I want you to lean in because we can actually work opposite this truth if we're not careful. But here's the truth, women. Don't flatten your definition of beauty to be only skin deep. True beauty is not merely skin deep. Sure, ladies, young gals, our culture is going to try to convince you that your physical beauty is everything, and that's all that matters is whether you're physically beautiful or not. But we don't drink that cultural Kool-Aid. True beauty, truly gorgeous women recognize beauty comes from good deeds, not just a good hair day. See, ladies, God doesn't care just that you show up to worship. God cares how you show up to worship. Here's a question for you to consider, ladies. Are you more concerned with beautiful looks or beautiful deeds? Are you more concerned with beautiful looks or beautiful deeds? Look, I'm married and I've got daughters, and so I'm all about eyeshadow and mascara. And you want to wear that? Okay. Got to do that in the right way. And that's fine. And I'm also fine that we brush teeth and wear deodorant. Bless the Lord for deodorant, you know? And all of these cultural expressions of how we try to make ourselves beautiful they're fine, but don't believe beauty is only skin deep or it's only physical or else you're missing God's heart for worship, ladies. And ladies, God cares how you worship. Now, for anybody who has been subtly trying to quickly remove their braided hair without me noticing or taking off that gold or pearl thing you brought in, and you do not show this to pastor today. I don't think Paul's aiming particularly at all braids or pearls or gold. I think those are cultural, even though the principle remains. I think those particular expressions are unique to Ephesus, and so it's not like all gold pearls are forbidden, but you can have a sapphire or an emerald, and those are okay. There are cultures in which you don't have to have any braids or any gold or any pearls, and you could still be violating the principle here. And then there are ways that you can modestly, in our culture, have pearls or gold or braids, and it's, it's not violating. 
here. And the, I draw that conclusion because in the Old Testament, there are prophets like Isaiah and Hosea and Amos who are railing against cultural ways that the Israelite covenant people of God were failing to worship Yahweh in some of their unique ways. And so that is a, that's a theme we already see in the scriptures, not to mention that in Revelation, we do have the bride of Christ coming down ornately dressed, prepared for the bridegroom, Christ. So that's why I don't think in all cultures across all time, these particulars are forbidden. What is more, I learned that in Ephesus there, the majority of non-Christians would worship at the cult of Artemis, and there were cult prostitutes who often were able to show themselves off with the elaborate braided hair that they would wear. And get this, there were times where they would sew pearls or gold into their clothing and into their hair. So it had this shimmering effect 2,000 years ago. And I think what was going on then is there's people in the church of Ephesus who go, man, that cult prostitute over there, she looks so beautiful. So many heads are turning. I want to dress like her. And Paul's saying, no, we don't drink culture's Kool-Aid in how we dress. God cares that we show up to worship, ladies. He also cares how we show up to worship. And we're not trying to worship like the culture. This commentary says it better than I can from a guy named, the last name Moo. This is not a blanket prohibition of all jewelry and fine clothing, but a warning against seductive, prideful, or ostentatious self-display. And Peter gives similar counsel and points to the example of righteous Old Testament women in 1 Peter 3. The issue is not whether women should seek to display beauty, but how they do so. Good deeds. First, glorify God and confer dignity and true beauty on worshiping women who practice them. Or Guthrie, who says it even more simply, good deeds are to be more eye-catching than outward appearance. Good deeds are to be more eye-catching than outward appearance. Now again, it doesn't mean that all women are going to equally struggle with this concept, but for those who do, here's the message. God cares that you worship, and he cares how you worship. Second heart issue handled, let's move to the third, which is the most controversial. If you're taking notes, here's how to put it down. Women in the church, be willing to learn and be led by pastors. Women in the church, be willing to Learn and be led by pastors. Draw this from verses 11 to 13. Now, a few disclaimers before we walk through this third heart issue. First, there are very deep feelings that some of the language here in God's word can touch. There are ways you may feel triggered, men and women, ways that Paul ruffles feathers. That happened for me too. Because culturally, this is the most radioactive section of this whole letter. Perhaps the most radioactive section of the book, uh, the Bible. See, in case you didn't know, out there, out there in the world, people aren't debating this. I think feminism won out there. Nobody, out there, the, the, the argument is sexuality. Do we actually believe in gender? Do we believe in lifelong heterosexual monogamy? That's the, vi that's the fight we have with non-Christians. But the fight that churches like us who go, this is really God's word. 
God's word really is the Supreme Court. God's word really means something. Paul actually meant to write this part. We're not embarrassed about any part of the Bible. We just are trying to rightly understand it. This is the fight that makes people so mad inside the church. And it has been my whole pastoral career, this part. So we don't want to be people. We don't want to be people who go, man, I'm really sorry that part's in the Bible. That part's in the Bible. We want to handle it right. We just realize it's radioactive. Disclaimer two, it can be easy to project our cultural assumptions onto Paul. It can be easy for us to go, oh, I know what Paul's saying. And then we project onto Paul what we think he's actually saying that we don't like. Instead of the golden rule of reading the Bible, it's always author's intent. What does the author intend to say? So we must be careful not to tell Paul what he's saying, but to ask Paul what he's saying. More technical, it's exegesis, not eisegesis. Exegesis, take out of the text what he means, not eisegesis, place on the text what it means. Third disclaimer, this this kind of verse has been used to silence and bully women. And some of you may have experienced that. Some have used this kind of a, the verses here in 11 to 13 to tell women that somehow you are inferior to men. They've been used as a billy club. That is a wrong and demonic interpretation of these verses. And yet, even though these verses have been taken out of context wrongly, doesn't mean that these verses are wrong inherently. And that's an important difference, okay? Just because the scriptures have been used wrong doesn't mean God's word is wrong. So with those disclaimers in mind, let's take a deep breath. And let's move through this section, okay? Let's walk through Paul's third heart instruction. Verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. 12. Don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. Now, right out of the gate, we can see why those disclaimers were necessary. Because if we're not careful, we can sort of look at that and go, Come on, man. I mean, and Paul's saying, hey, ladies, ladies, dress the right way, and then when you're in the worship service, sit down and shut up. That's what some can think that that thing says. But that's not God's heart for worship. That's not Paul's either. Because keep in mind, 2,000 years ago, in worship culture, women were not welcomed equally to learn like men. Right? Remember your history. Or just remember world geography, modern-day geography. In our 2023 age, there are cultures right now that do not allow women to learn next to men. You all know that? All right, so so 2,000 years ago, what, what Paul is writing is actually incredibly provocative culturally when he says, Timothy, I want you to create a worship environment where women are welcome to come and learn just like men. In some Jewish cultures, women were never taught like men. But like Christ, who honored and welcomed women. What rabbi did that? 
We want to follow you too, Jesus. Yes, men and women alike can follow Jesus. So Paul, wanting Timothy to create that worship environment so that women, like men, may love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their sign, with all their mind, with all their soul, with all their strength. And so, yes, while some will look at this and go, oh, Paul is just saying, shut up and sit down, ladies. That's not the message. In fact, the word quietly in verse 11, if you look at the text there, the word quietly there, as well as the word quiet at the end of 12, they're the same word, and they're also used in Acts 22, verse 2, same word in all three places, verse 11, verse 12, and Acts 22, 2, when Paul is speaking to a hostile and shouting crowd. He uses the same word, and in the words of Pillar Commentary, let me read this to you, the word quiet means attentive silence for the sake of giving someone a hearing. In the case of 1 Timothy 1.11, where we find that word, that someone would be the Ephesian church leaders instructing the congregation and ultimately God or Christ who are mediated through the gospel as it is taught. This is crucial. The call then is not for total verbal silence from women, but for them to exhibit a peaceful and gentle attitude in their task of learning. See, what I hope I've showed you through this text is that Paul has been concerned to protect the church from disruptive worship. Paul's identifying areas where there's going to be terrible distractions, so men do this, not that. When it comes to clothing, do this, not that. Here's what it comes to teaching and spiritual authority. Do this, not that. Not to mention, in case somebody's thinking, but why is he picking on ladies then? Why is he aiming at ladies to create this quiet environment? Well, don't forget that if this letter had been written, excuse me, read from beginning to end as it would have been culturally, the Ephesian church would have already heard in chapter 1 verse 3, Paul telling the false teachers, zip it. And at chapter 1, verses 20, he's already told Hymenaeus and Alexander, you are not welcome to speak in the worship service. They have been kicked out of that kind of leadership. I know this morning we come to this text fresh. I just want you to see how contextually, this isn't the first time that he's working towards creating a quiet and worshipful environment. He's not only pointing at women, even though this one is focused that way. Remember or rather see Paul's reasoning, why he anchors in the Genesis account and the roles God gave Adam and Eve. Look at verse 13 and 14. Eve was deceived. Eve was deceived. So, so we don't, we're not going to have women teaching and offering spiritual authority in the church because don't forget, Eve is the one who was deceived, Paul's saying, and she, so to speak, taught Adam to eat the fruit. Now, again, that's all sorts of radioactive for some. Don't hear me saying that all of the sin of mankind falls on Eve's shoulders alone. Romans 5, Paul uses the Adam and Eve account, and he puts all the blame on Adam. But in this, in this example, Paul is saying, look, this is what happens when men and women aren't functioning in their roles. And he goes back to the original sin. God has a design, that's Paul's argument, which frames verse 15 and helps us realize then, Paul's not saying technical salvation, 
justification by faith, comes from women who give birth. For, of course, that's theologically impossible. This verse cannot mean, look, ladies, if, if you just have a baby, then you make it to heaven. Instead, Paul is anchoring this third heart issue in God's created order, telling the women in Ephesus, do this, not that. Women, be willing to learn and be led by pastors. Do this, not that. By, don't seek to be the spiritual authority by teaching men in the church. See, God, for reasons that may not fully satisfy you this morning, has created men and women with specific roles and responsibilities. And women, your role isn't spiritual authority or teaching over men in the church. It's childbearing. And rejecting God's created order leads to worship disruption in the church. Now again, this may put a bad taste in your mouth. This may put a bad taste in your mouth because you're going, women are, are supposed to do this, not that, and it includes being a wife and bearing children. I don't like the taste in my mouth. But I wonder if that's because you've been drinking too much of culture's Kool-Aid. Because Bible Kool-Aid doesn't put down that role for women. The Bible makes much of a female who would say, my, my hope is to grow up and get married and have kids. Oh, our culture, our culture flushes that idea down the toilet. And if you have an allergic reaction to this idea, gals, if you're a young gal in here, and, and, or a teenager, or, or a single gal, and, and you don't like the idea of God has created you to be a wife and bear children, you don't like that idea, I wonder, you look at this, because this holds that role high, even though our world points it low. Psalm 127.3, children are a gift from the Lord as, as is children. Look, my hope for, my, for the gals I'm raising, my daughters, I want them to know growing up, getting married and having a lot of children is one of the most countercultural ways you can fight the enemy in his darkness. But our culture hates encouraging gals to grow up and have kids and be married. And it ought not be surprising that our culture hates that message. Our culture hates that message. Our culture hates kids. And is this any surprise? Our culture, Satan has always hated babies. And back with Pharaoh in the Exodus, what did Pharaoh have them doing to all those babies? Killing them. The world's always hated babies. Think about Jesus when he's born. What is Herod out doing? Killing babies. Nothing's changed. The prince of darkness hates children and he wants them to be killed. And if Christians are trying to raise their kids and are telling their kids, yeah, don't get married and have babies, that's not a good idea. We are contradicting what God has called good and holy and wonderful. And I suppose if you want to accuse me of being sexist for that position, my heart to you would be, well, then how else do you make sense of this? Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying 
that women can't work or, or wives can't work or mothers of children can't work. I, I'm not saying you can't work outside the home if that's what you choose to do. And clearly, Paul is not making mention of how women may teach or lead outside the context of church. So women, you want to work and be in politics or be the CEO of some company or lead in lots of other ways. This is not prohibiting you from any of that. I just want to make sure we get to the heart of any Christian confused about roles. Being a wife and mother is an incredible gift uniquely to women. And it is nothing short of miraculous. Undoubtedly hard, but it is a joyful gift. Unique. Only you can do this. Women here who are prevented from this role because you're single or infertile or for other reasons this this childbearing command might hurt, it might touch an ache, and yet the desire for kids is not wrong or dangerous. Wanting children, wanting to be married, having children, that is good and it is God-given. It is not second class no matter what culture tells you. So, what's this mean? In the church, God has roles for men and women, and women, your role is not teaching or exercising spiritual authority in the church. But that's not because you're not gifted. Because here's something else that I hear folks who don't like or don't know how else to make sense of this text. They go, well, are you saying women are not actually incapable of this? Absolutely not. Real talk. Many of you women are probably better at speaking than I am. Better leaders than I am. Better leaders than some of our elders are. So this isn't saying you're not better or gifted in leadership or teaching. And yet here is God's word for how he wants to be worshipped from the commentary again. Here Paul describes what he wants Timothy to promote as regular worship order. Overseers, chapter 3 should do just that. And in the context of early church worship, it means that while men and women alike offered prophecy and prayer, 1 Corinthians eleven four, there came a time in the assembly when the pastoral leaders, men, instructed and no doubt exhorted, consistent with this mandate. Click that slide, we'll make sure that's up there. Here Paul describes what he wants Timothy to promote. This is regular worship order. Overseers do just that. In the context of early worship, it means while men and women alike offered prophecy and prayer, there came a time in the assembly when the pastoral leaders who were men instructed and no doubt exhorted consistent with this mandate. Now again, I hope you're hearing our heart, the heart of our elders, for we want women teaching and leading in all the ways that Scripture promotes. In fact, frankly, Michelle Welch and her team do a phenomenal job of leading in the roles that God has designed for them. And, and Michelle and, and her team have people here on Wednesday mornings. The parking lot's full of gals who are doing exactly what God's word has said. And on other nights, I think there's a Monday night group as well as other groups that 
are meeting together, groups of four or groups of six. I don't know all the ways that women are actually doing exactly what God's word says. Community, discipling, speaking God's word into one another's lives. And we honor all of those women who are leading and serving in the right ways. Those are beautiful good deeds. And for all ladies who take the task of sharing the gospel seriously and want to see the Great Commission fulfilled and find themselves going, man, I got to go share the gospel with my neighbors. All of that is in bounds and wonderful and a gift completely faithful to what Paul is saying here. Don't stop. So don't, and don't get the idea that women never speak in church, as we already mentioned. We know from 1 Corinthians 11.5 that there are roles in which women do speak. And Titus 2 clarifies ways in which women teach, speak, pray, even lead, you could surmise. Spoiler alert, 1 Timothy 3.11, women can serve as deacons. And yet the church's spiritual, pastoral authority that Paul's talking about, that's for men. And look, don't think that this means that women are to be in full submission in every other ways that you can imagine either. It'd be equally wrong to read this and suspect that Paul wants women to act as silent, robotic-like handmaids, catering to male power, privilege, and domains in every area of life. That's not what Paul's saying here. He is talking about the domain of church, not everything. It brings clarity to what we call eldering and pastoral leadership. Here then is the heart question. Here then is the heart question. Women, will you joyfully live in the role God has given you and allow men to spiritually lead? That's the heart question. Paul addressing women here doesn't mean that every woman in here equally struggles with this. It does bring to mind Genesis 3 and the curse for married women, which is you will have a desire over your husband. The husband rules. But it doesn't mean every woman is going to struggle equally in the church. But the, but the heart issue that this is warning and the disruptive worship that Paul's trying to prevent really gets to us in this way. Are we going to follow God's word and worship God's way or are we going to drink culture's Kool-Aid in how we worship? Sermon in a sentence. God's people must worship God's way. Look, I know this is a little longer of a sermon than normal here. I wanted to take the time to get to the heart of what's going on. And, and here's the way I want to finish then. In case you're here and you're feeling like, that's not fair. I don't like it, Pastor. Perhaps you're a man and you're, you're feeling, you used to, you, you walked in feeling justified about how angry you were and how you quarrel with people and the Spirit has convicted you, and you feel like, but that's not fair. That doesn't feel good. Or maybe you're really frustrated by the ways that Paul's trying to avoid disruptive worship by speaking to women about modesty and clothing and jewelry or the role that women have 
in the home versus in the church, maybe you're feeling like that's not fair. Well, the reason we worship God's way isn't because it's fair in the way we see it. And the place that we find motivation to actually worship God's way is not found at Sinai, and it's not found in Ephesus, and it's certainly not found here at Mill Creek with some preacher who has anger issues. The place we find the motivation to actually worship God's way is at Calvary. Where there, the perfect son of God took the most unfair punishment of all time. Jesus Christ, church, he was the true Adam. He didn't fail in his garden. Adam and Eve failed in their garden, but not Jesus. In his garden, he's sweating blood, and he's on his knees, and he's saying, please, let there be another way. But he didn't fail. And he didn't follow culture's way of worship. No, instead, he took himself as an offering to God. He placed himself on the altar for worship. Jesus, he's the true Israel. He didn't fail in the desert. He didn't bow down to some stupid heifer. Jesus Christ, he found himself in his desert perfectly obeying God and answering Satan's temptation by calling out God's word. Jesus worshiped God's way. And that's where we find the motivation for any of the feelings you may have in which you go, gosh, I'm not sure this feels fair. Jesus shows us we don't merely worship because it's fair. In fact, Jesus, he disrupted his worship with God the Father. He disrupted his worship by taking the sin of the world, your sin, on his shoulders. And he disrupted his worship so that you and I, who are guilty of disrupting worship in all sorts of ways, may actually worship in a way that's acceptable to God because of Christ. Well, that's how we find the motivation to change. That's the way we find the motivation to worship God's way, through Christ. Church, don't drink the culture's Kool-Aid on how to worship. Instead, let God's word lead us to worship God's way. Will you pray with me? And now, Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you would take your word and it would do work. Whatever you want to have accomplished through this sermon, I pray you would do it. You would make us more like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.